<laughs> right. Okay, let's read some verses, shall we? From the book of Romans. No, the book of Ephesians in the New Testament. Yeah, Ephesians chapter 2, I think I said alone. So Ephesians chapter 2 is a chapter where the Apostle Paul's talking about what happens when you become a Christian. What it means to be a new creation, as we've just been singing about. And uh, this is one of the earliest descriptions, I suppose, uh, that we get in literature of what it's like to be a Christian. And uh, he talks uh, in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4 like this. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So he's saying, when you become a Christian, it's a cataclysmic change. It really is. Because it's just like Jesus being killed and then rising again and, and having a completely new existence in, in power and glory. It's like you die with Jesus and you're raised again with him and a new life comes into you. And then you start to change a little bit as well because it says we're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus so that we'll do the right stuff instead of the wrong stuff. And so becoming a Christian is a change in your life. Now, over this year, in this series, we've been looking at some of the objections that people raise to Christianity in general and just trying to give some evidence that we can use um, when we're asked one of these questions. And uh, one of the questions you get asked is, does conversion really happen? Are people dead one minute and then hello the next does god really do something like that in people's lives or is it just fantasy is it make-believe is it a psychological phase you're passing through or something like that and last week we started looking at that a little bit we started talking about the way that conversion has always been part of christian history this is something that happened uh, back in the 1950s when billy graham first came to Britain. thousands and thousands and thousands of people wanted to hear the message he had not because there was anything special about him there were lots of other preachers around at the time, who, some of them were probably a bit better, but because he was somebody God was really using to have people come to this kind of reality. And many, many people were converted uh, through what he was doing. But he's just one example. All over the world, it's been happening for ages and ages. But how do you tell whether it's real or not? And if it is real, how can you tell when it's happened to somebody? We also said last week it's complicated. Because we're looking at things from the outside. We gave a lot of reasons that I'm not going to go through again. They're on, on the tape, on the website if you want to look at it. Uh, all sorts of reasons why we can't just know for sure what's going on inside anybody else's mind or head or heart. Because the only reality we know is what's inside us. But uh, So it's hard to judge sometimes whether somebody is a Christian or isn't. Somebody who gives up was ever really a Christian in the first place. And it's very difficult because we only have our experience to go by. And sometimes you can look at some people and say, I know why he became a Christian. I know why she became a Christian. It was because of their dad or they were brainwashed by their family. It can be all sorts of things. Now, sometimes those things can be real. There are forces that work on you that bring you to a certain point to, 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 to think about Jesus and decide which way you want to go. And sometimes those can be natural things inside yourself. That doesn't mean, though, that it's not a spiritual thing too. Because the God who is the God of conversion 
He's also the God of creation. He made you in the first place. So if somebody becomes a Christian, he's worked on in two ways. First of all, God has made him or her a certain kind of person. And God will use those things. We'll press the right buttons when it comes to the point to say, here you are, you've got a decision to make. Now make the right decision and accept Jesus. So God's work in creation is supplemented by God's work in redemption, in bringing somebody back into his family. And so those two things belong together. But how do you explain that to somebody else? Well, we went through a lot of the, the, the background stuff last week and we left ourselves at the end with two final questions, which being long-winded, I never got round in the end. So let's fill those in uh, to start with and then we'll talk about some of the arguments you can use. First of all, are people still getting converted today? Does it still happen? Lots of people uh, think it doesn't. That uh, people used to be really interested in Christianity because they were all superstitious, weren't they? And all believed in the thunderstorm. Oh, God is talking to me and stuff like that. So God just a prayer away. And uh, it's not like that now. We live in a world in which there are all sorts of forces at work. There's artificial intelligence, which is going to change everything in the next 10 years. We've, uh, we can't, we don't have time to bother about God or heaven or anything like that. And therefore, people are losing interest in Christianity and it's all vanishing away. We quoted this morning John Lennon, who said back in 1964, Christianity will fade, it will vanish and shrink. I don't have to argue about that. I'm right and I will be proved right. Well, 60 years on, we're still hosting, but it's, uh, that was the, the, the claim he had and the belief that many people have right now. So is it happening or is it not? Second thing is, what other explanations might there be? If people don't get converted, and yet their life changes, what's happened to them? Is it some sort of psychological crisis? Is it a brain fever? What's, what's going on in people's minds if it's not God? So let's have a look at those th two things to start with. First of all, are people still getting converted today? Well, uh, we said this morning that uh, there's a, a great deal of fuss at the moment about the fact that Islam is going to outpace Christianity in a few years' time. And that's all based on this report, which was produced by the Pew Research Centre in America back in 2015. Actually, they published in 2017, I think, but the research was in 2015. And they said, well, look, there are more and more Muslim babies being born, and there are slightly fewer Christian babies. So go on 20 years, and there'll be more Muslims than Christians around. Well, that begs a lot of questions, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, it implies that everybody who's born a Muslim or born a Christian stays that way. And you cannot be born a Christian anyway, the Bible says, if you need the second experience of being born again. I am a new creation. So you can be born into a Christian family. You can grow up, go into a Christian church and still not be a Christian. It's something you have to decide for yourself. Whereas in Islam, if you're born into Islam, then you're, you're, you're thought of as Muslim from day one. And in actual fact, it's very difficult to get out of it and you death threats if you convert to anything else. So it's not quite the, the, the same thing. But the, anyway, the reports here we are. Here's this is the way we're going. Countries that will no longer have a Christian majority in 2050. There's the Netherlands, there's New Zealand, there's France, and there's the United Kingdom. In uh, uh, 2010... Christians, they say, were 64.3% of the population in Britain, and by uh, 2050, that will have shrunk to 45.4%. But hang on a minute, if you're talking about real Christians, are we really saying that 64% of the population in 2010, which is only 13 years ago, so I remember it very well, are we saying that all of those people were Christians yet? Well, certainly not. We're talking about people who, if uh, somebody asked them on the street, excuse me, I'm doing a survey, are you a Christian? would say, oh, Christian, yeah, 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 all right, fine. And, and, and they would, wouldn't think of it twice. But it doesn't mean something that governs their life, 
something that affects their thinking or their imagination or their allegiance or their sympathies, something that affects the way they spend their money or the way they vote. They're talking to something, oh, yeah, yeah, I suppose I'm a Christian. Fewer and fewer people in Britain are saying that, <laughs> but that's perhaps just a bit more honesty, isn't it? That people are not so ready to be pigeonholed as something they're not really actually. And so this is, is, is very dubious research, it seems to me. It's only if you go by the number of people who are being born that you get these kind of results. This is the kind of uh, way in which it, it looks the poll. On the left there, you have the number of people in the world, and you can see that the Muslim percentage, the green line, is going up faster than the Christian line, and therefore uh, that's the way the population is going. The percentage of the population on the right over there, Muslims going sharply upwards, and Christians looking like a fairly springy washing line there. Um, uh, just just ahead as a percentage of the world's population, but being caught up pretty fast. And down at the bottom, that's an interesting one too, isn't it? Because this is saying that those who claim to be unaffiliated to any religion, atheists, who say, I'm, I'm just not religious, I don't do anything like that, that percentage is going to go down. Why? Because they're not having babies. <laughs> and so they believe that by 2050, the religiously unaffiliated will decline as a share of the world's population. In other words, there'll be fewer atheists around in 2050 because they just won't be being born. I don't believe that is. Of them, most of the atheists I know were not born atheists. They became atheists as time went by as they just decided this Christianity thing wasn't for them. So I'm not sure that this research proves anything other than that this is the way that we're going to have babies in the future. In fact, if you look at the way that conversion is going, real conversion growth, experiences where people are convinced to change from one thing to another around the world, there are far more people becoming Christians than are going to any other faith. In 2006, for instance, which admittedly is a, nearly 20 years ago now, that the Christian World Database, which is a pretty serious piece of research, it estimated that by the number of new adherents, Christianity was the fastest growing religion in the world with 30,360,000 new adherents in 2006. Worldwide, over 30 million people said, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ. I didn't before, but I'm accepting him right now. That was followed by Islam with 23,920,000 uh, 23, and Hinduism with 13,224,000 estimated new adherents in the same period. But how does that come about? It's not necessarily an individual choice, an individual uh, decision. A lot of this is talking about people who have been uh, pushed into conversion simply because of their circumstances, economically and politically and everything else. It doesn't mean they really believe in those, those particular religions. Whereas the Christian figures are for people who did make a decision to accept Jesus Christ on their own. There are approximately 100 million conversions to Christianity every year according to the World Christian Encyclopedia, again, as a serious uh, research base. In Africa in 1900, there were about 8.7 million adherents to Christianity. That's after more of a century of missionaries going there, building hospitals, mission stations, churches, all sorts of things. But now, in Africa, there are 390 million Christians, and by 2025, there'll be 600 million, more than anywhere else in the world. So, Christians aren't doing that badly. Uh, Peter Freston, uh, Phil, Phil, sorry, Phil, uh, Paul Freston is um, uh, one of the world experts on conversion. He's a Christian himself, so you can say a bit biased if you like. He works in a university in Canada, although he's a member of all kinds of uh, universities as a kind of uh, honorary member because he is the one expert on the world on this situation. And he says this, within a couple of decades, half of the world's Christians will be in Africa and Latin America. 
2050, on current trends, there'll be as many Pentecostals in the world as there are Hindus, and twice as many Pentecostals as Buddhists. And Pentecostals are Christians, but they're not the only Christians around. And so Chris, the Christian church is going ahead like nothing on earth actually is. But it's all happening in places where we are not. And here in Western Europe and in America, the number of people who are becoming Christians is minimal. And people are giving up on it. Churches are closing. Congregations are getting older as time goes by. And it's not that way around the world. You just have to go to Singapore or Malaysia in Southeast Asia and see the, the enthusiasm of young people who are Christians down there. Go to Latin America, where uh, in a big conference for Comibam about 10 years ago, hundreds and hundreds of young people stood to their feet saying, I want to give my life to mission. I want to go to other places and tell people all about Jesus. A lot of people never made it out of Latin America. At least they haven't yet. Why? Because they were the poor. They couldn't afford to do it. But they've been looking in their own areas and in their own friendship groups. And the church has just exploded across Latin America. If you look at the um, number of uh, uh, Brazilian, Argentinian, Colombian footballers that end up in Europe and the transfer window is just closed, you find an awful lot of them come from a Christian background. They're not all Christians, and some of them who claim to be like, well, I wouldn't name any names, but uh, they worry me um, because they don't seem to behave that way. But there are so many Christians around in South America and Latin America now that it's, it's just part of the culture, and, and, and people grow knowing what Jesus Christ is all about in a way that just does not happen here in the West. So it's growing. But the second question is, is it real? Does it actually affect people's lives in a real way? What other explanations might there be? Well, one of the conversion stories that's been looked at more than any other in history, I guess, is one of the first ones, the conversion of the Apostle Paul. Do you remember he's on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians? Suddenly he sees a bright light and he hears a voice speaking to him, and it's Jesus. And just completely turned upside down by the whole experience. What actually happened there? Well, people have come up with various theories. Maybe he had sunstroke, or maybe he had a seizure of some kind. That doesn't seem likely because um, the experiences he had, there were other people there with him, and they saw and heard some of the same things. Not all of them, but some of the same stuff went on. They heard there was a voice speaking, although they didn't know what it was saying, and they saw the bright light, and they were all part of the whole thing. So it couldn't just have been that. Some people say, ah, temporal lobe epilepsy, that's what it is, because the Apostle Paul clearly had a problem all through his life. He talks in 2 Corinthians about his thorn in the flesh, and he doesn't say what that was. But it's obviously something that comes and troubles him from time to time. And maybe it was a, a medical ailment. Maybe he had epilepsy, and he just had a fit from time to time. Maybe those bits in the, in the epistles where it says that the Lord Jesus appeared at his bedside were times when he was having a fit or something like that. But again, when you look into the facts medically and the things that we do, know, the data just doesn't compute. Paul was not like that at all. Was it that he was having a psychotic episode of some kind? Well, it didn't happen again in his life. It seems a very unlikely thing to happen. Was it that he, he was secretly a homosexual and he felt guilty about it? And this was some kind of experience he manufactured inside his own head to deal with the fact that he couldn't cope with sexuality. And that's why we don't know anything about the Apostle Paul's wife. Oh, that's pretty far-fetched, to be honest. It's very, very strange indeed, that, uh, and it doesn't fit in with the other data we know about him. And the final thing that people would say is, well, maybe it was made up. You know, maybe it's didn't, it never happened, but he had to invent this story so that he could explain this turnaround in his life. But then why did he turn around? 
Because by becoming a Christian, he said goodbye to his background and his respectability and his secure place in society. Something clearly that was big and was something that he had not planned had come and taken hold of him and something had taken place. And you tend to think this, that whenever you try to explain other people's experience of me and say it was just this or it was just that, you're dealing with some of the data, but not all of it. And there's more that doesn't fit. And uh, so for the last hundred years, to cut a long story short, people have been studying this whole thing, asking the question, how do we explain conversion? It all started about 1899, when a man called Starbuck put together a book with, I think it was a hundred cases of Christian conversion. And Starbuck was just collecting these things. He was quite sympathetic, but he wasn't judging. He was just trying to stay on the fence. And so he wrote down what they said, and he based his whole book around it and said, how, what do we make of this kind of stuff? Around the same time, there was William James, who wrote who called Varieties of Religious Experience. He was a psychologist too. And so the first attempt to understand conversion, around about that period, early in the 20th century, came from psychology. Is there something that happens in people's brains that changes when they get converted? Is that what's going on? Can we explain it away as just a psychological phenomenon? But that doesn't seem to fit. And so there was another discipline, which was just becoming big at that time, which was also used later on. When the psychologists weren't coming up with any answers, the sociologists got involved. Of course, the big psychologist, just to backtrack for a second, was Sigmund Freud. And Freud was somebody who was an atheist Jew, and he hated Christians. He absolutely did. He talked about Jesus in the most scathing terms you can imagine. But interestingly, even Freud, although he tried to explain Jesus and conversion away, had to admit that for some of his patients, who couldn't be helped by any of his therapies, Christianity was what he called a, a crooked cure. In other words, when people came to him for counselling, it did them no good. When they became Christians, ooh, suddenly their problems went away. And he didn't like that, but he had to admit it worked. So that's interesting. So psychology wasn't coming up with too many reasons. Sociology was the next one. Now this again started with an atheist Jew, a guy called Emil Dorkheim, who uh, in France was the son of a rabbi, but didn't believe any of the stuff he'd been brought up to believe. And what happened was that he started observing how people behaved in society. When you were a Jew living in France, you were very conscious that you didn't quite belong. And there were some things that you know, ethnic French people did, which excluded you a little bit. And he became very aware of the way in which the society we live in shapes our minds and our thoughts and our attitudes. And so sociologists started getting in, and it's somewhere about 1920, 1930, and saying, let's look at Christianity sociologically. Maybe people get converted because society around them pushes them in a certain direction. And once again, that didn't seem to work. So the latest discipline to look at it over the last few years has been neurology. We know a lot more about the inside workings of your brain than we ever did before. The human brain is a very complicated thing. And the more we explore artificial intelligence, the more we become aware that if it's going to copy the human brain, we don't understand nearly enough about the brain yet to make sense of it all. The brain is not so much like a computer, which is what they thought to start with, as a network of computers, all doing different things but linked together. And so it's very complicated. But neurology said, well, let's see if we can get to the bottom of this. Let's see if there are changes in the brain when people get convicted. And as I say, all three of these, these fields would have to say, well, we're not there yet. We haven't worked it out. Psychology uh, came to the conclusion that after years of trying to find out what was psychologically wrong with believers, actually becoming a Christian is quite a healthy thing to do. It didn't make you more crazy. It made you more loopy. In other words, it made you, it made you more settled, more stable, uh, a better individual. 
And psychology can't explain why it happens to people, but it's got to say it's a pretty good thing for a lot of people. Then there's sociology. What about sociology? Well, sociologists have found that there are cultural factors involved. But as they've looked at how people become Christians in different countries around the world, they see it happens in the same way in background after background, in countries that are completely different from one another, in people who've brought, been brought up in completely different ways, with different assumptions, different understandings of life, clever people, unsophisticated people, people in the Western world, people in other parts of the world. All, all kinds of people in all sorts of backgrounds will have the same experience of Jesus Christ. And so again, sociologists are saying, well, we can understand a bit of it through the culture that people come from, but that's not the whole thing. Then there's neurology. What about that? Well, neurologists are saying when somebody becomes a Christian, there is a definite change, in many cases at least, in brain activity. Something seems to happen to the functioning of their brain. But it doesn't come from faulty neurological processes. It's not that their brain has sort of decayed in some kind of a way. In fact, it's a good thing. It helps the brain operate better. And people who become Christians seem to have a better uh, mental understanding than other people do. One of the, the key researchers in this area at the moment is Dr. Kelly Boakley from America. He's got two great interests in what he researches. One is dreams, and he's Mr. Dream as far as the world is concerned. He's made a lot of money out of working out what your dreams actually mean and why you have them when you do and all the rest of that. But his other interest is religious conversion. And he says this, current research in cognitive neuroscience refutes the idea that religion comes from faulty mind processes. The best available scientific evidence indicates that people who engage in religiously motivated contemplative practices, in other words, who pray, who read their Bibles, that sort of thing, have normal, healthy brains. And he says the, the CN literature, cognitive neuroscience literature, supports a pragmatic appreciation of the effectiveness of religious practices in shaping the healthy interaction of brain and mind. So have these disciplines proved anything about conversion? Oh yeah, they've proved it's good for you. <laughs> but that's about as far as it goes. So there is no way of explaining what is going on in conversion. You can explain some of the mechanisms, you can't explain them all. And you can see, if you follow people down through the years, how God is shaping and changing lives. We talked last week about what real conversion looks like. Not going to talk about that again, but just to remind you, it starts with repentance, with turning your back on an old life and saying, I'm going to go God's way in future. It goes on with despair of yourself, saying, I can't do this on my own. I'll just fall over all the time. So God, if you are there, I need your help, otherwise I'm not going to make it. The third thing is submission to Jesus. You are Lord, you are boss, I'm going to follow you as long as I live. The fourth thing is that you see a change in people. There is a growing holiness. If people claim to be Christians and nothing much happens in their lives, they've not done it right. They've not really got there yet. Because what happens when Jesus Christ gets hold of life is you start to change bit by bit and you become more different from other people. And fruitfulness, your life starts producing things it would never produce otherwise. You're going somewhere and finally there's brotherly love. You start to appreciate other Christians and see what uh, there is in them that Jesus is doing that he can also do in you and you're drawn together as part of a family. That's what conversion is all right. So if we're trying to explain this to somebody else, Let's do what we usually do in the last 10 minutes we've got and talk about, first of all, what key Bible passages do you need to know to base what you're saying on? Because often it's good to show people something in the Bible. And I don't think having one little text is what you need. What you need is a passage that you understand and that you can apply. So I've got four for you here, and uh, these are just my suggestions. But uh, these are the ones that I think I would say are a good base 
for explaining to anybody else what it means to be a Christian. It's chapter 3, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 John 4, and Jeremiah 31. And not the whole chapter, just a few verses are picked in each, each case, but let's have a look at this thing anyhow. John chapter 3, this is a famous passage where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And this I would use as a passage to explain all of this, to say, look, this is what Christianity is really all about. That phrase, born again, has been misused since the 1970s, and people don't really know what it means anymore. But take them back to John 3 and see, this is where it starts from. Jesus said to this man who'd been religious all of his life, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And Nicodemus doesn't understand it. How can someone be born when they're old? He's probably making a pretty bad joke. You want me to go back into my mother's womb and be born all over again? That's ridiculous, Jesus. And Jesus says, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. Now that's a bit that you might find it difficult to explain, water and the Spirit. And to be quite honest with you, the theologians have three different interpretations of what that might mean. But one thing probably, uh, which is a, is a good explanation of it, is being born of water would remind John's hearers of the fact that uh, in those days when you became a Christian, you were baptised straight away to bear witness to the fact that you were a Christian. But it made no sense unless you were also born of the Spirit, unless something had happened inside you. So there was an outside thing, testifying with your mouth that Jesus was the Lord, and there was an inside thing, believing in your heart that God had raised him from the dead, and those two things belong together. So that's probably what's being spoken about there. And Jesus goes on, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And if you show this passage to somebody, you can say, there you are, you see. This is what Christians have put right from the word go. Being a Christian isn't a matter of things you can see on the outside. I have attended church 75 times this year. That's pretty good, given there are only 52 Sundays. I have done this for the old elderly. I help old ladies across the road, even when they don't want to go. I do this, I do that. It's not things you can notice from the outside. It's something that happens inside. It's an internal, invisible change, like the wind blowing somebody's hat off. You don't know it's coming. <laughs> you only know it by its effects. And that's what Jesus is saying. You know that God has got a hold of your life when you see changes coming in you that only he, by his Holy Spirit, could have put there. So that's one passage I would use. Another one is the one that we looked at last week from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And this is the one that we, on which that bouncy song, I Am a New Creation, is based. Um, if anyone is in Christ, says the Apostle Paul, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. An old life has passed away. A whole new life has arrived. And you, you point to this to people and say, look, this is what a Christian is supposed to be. Not just somebody who goes to church when he feels like it. Not just somebody who has the same opinions as Jesus. But somebody who's been changed into a new creation. And all of this is done by God, it goes on to say, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. It's not something you do for yourself. I'm going to be a Christian, so what do I have to do? I'll apply this recipe. One, two, three. Uh, it's not like that. It's something that God has got to do in you. Then there's a third passage, and the third passage I would use is uh, from the first letter of John in the New Testament. And John says this, this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He's given us of his spirit. Something has happened. A new change has come into my life because God's Holy Spirit has got a grip on me that he never had before. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Saviour of the world. 
And so we, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all involved. And something happens to us that opens our eyes. We say, yes, Jesus is the Savior. I can believe that. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them. And they live in God. And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. The whole Trinity, God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, do something to us that brings us that conviction that it's actually happened. It's real. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we'll have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. As you live as a Christian, you start becoming possessed by the love of God in a new way. And you start loving other people. You start loving this poor, sick, tired old planet. You start loving other Christians and you start loving Jesus. And all that love is shed abroad in you by the Holy Spirit. And you know that something real is happening to you. The fourth passage I've just stuck in because people might say, well, you know, this is all Christian stuff out of the New Testament. Surely, before Jesus came along, nobody ever thought about that. The Jews were perfectly happy with what they had without, without any, any experiences like this. And actually, if you go back to the book of Jeremiah, you find Jeremiah prophesying about what God is going to do one of these days. He says this, This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. I'll put my law in their minds. I'll write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, No, the Lord! Because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness, I will remember their sins no more. Jeremiah is prophesying a day when God will sweep people's hearts clean. Their sins will be forgiven. They'll come to know God in a new way. And it won't just be the special ones, the priests or the prophets or the king or whoever. They will all know God. And they won't have to be taught to know him because the Holy Spirit will be living right there inside them. So from those days, hundreds of years before Jesus came along, that was the expectation and that was what Jesus came to bring. Okay, if that's the Bible base, and if that's what Christians um, actually believe, can you think of three good reasons that you could use in explaining this to somebody else? We've done this for every uh, question we've looked at so far, and we're a good way through this series now, so I was hoping to have this done for tonight, but it didn't happen. It's three weeks until I reappear here again, and in those three weeks, I promise, I'm going to put it all together in written form. I'll leave it on, on, on the, the internet, but I'll also print out a few copies, and if you want all of the reasons and passages and things we've talked about for those key questions this year, you'll be able to get it next time you come. Now I've nailed my colours to the mast, I've got to do it. Okay, fair enough. Three good reasons, though. What, should, what do we see on this one tonight? I, I think the three reasons I would use if I had to answer this question with somebody else, it would be like this. First, conversion, becoming a Christian, this experience of being born again, it's happened right down through history in widely different cultures. And just as those psychologists and sociologists looked back and said, whoa, we don't understand what's going on here. So we have to say the same thing. You can look all over the world and you'll find people becoming Christians. What was it, 100 million a year? Something like that. And you'll find they come from all sorts of different backgrounds with all sorts of different needs. It's not just one thing that's being fulfilled here. It's God is meeting all kinds of different needs in the one way through introducing people to his son through the Holy Spirit. So this is something that you can't just argue away and say, huh, it was just a father fixation. It was just a, an epileptic fit. It was just a whatever. You can't say that because it's much, much bigger. Second thing I would say is still today it's going on. It brings a change that can't be explained away to millions of people. And sometimes when you've encountered it, you begin to realize the reality of it. 
I remember once having to go and I probably told the story before, but never mind, and, and uh, speak as an after-dinner speaker in the house of a builder in Merchure. This guy had become a Christian. Before then, he'd been a bit of a jack the lad, and I think some of the houses he built were likely to fall down. If he didn't use aero concrete, he used something to like it. But so he'd made lots of money, and so he had a very big house. And then, amazingly, he'd become a Christian. And his friends couldn't believe it because he'd not exactly been the most trustworthy of characters. But he'd just changed. And I remember going to his house and he said, I want you to have dinner with my friends and then at the end just hit them with all the evidence you can think about for Christianity. So I did that. He introduced me, he said, John's a Christian, he's going to tell you what Christianity makes sense. Here we go. And I did the best I could. I, I went through everything. You know, evidence that Jesus existed, evidence for the reliability of scripture, evidence for the resurrection. You name it, I threw it all at them. And, uh, and at the end I said, so, you know, fine. Let's, any questions you've got, any, anything you want to say, here I am. And there's this silence for a bit. And then suddenly, somebody at the other end of the table, had to be a Scotsman, he suddenly said, I don't believe a word of this. I thought, thank you very much indeed. He said, I'm not convinced by your reasons. He said, I'm here for one reason and one reason alone tonight. I said, what's that? He said, well, when I was a student, I was living in the house uh, as a lodger where there was an old man and his wife. And they were Christians. And he told me all about it, and I didn't believe any of it. And he said, you know, while I was there, the old man died. He said, I have never seen anybody handle death like that old woman. I never realized that was possible. But she had a confidence and a peace and a hope I've never seen anywhere else. And he said, I've been searching ever since then to find how I could get hold of that. <laughs> and that's the only reason I'm here tonight. And as you can imagine, we had a pretty interesting chat after that, right around the table. But that sometimes happens. That people who don't believe it, don't buy it, won't accept it, see the real thing. And they think, wow, I'm missing something here. What's going on? Still today, it brings a change that can't be explained away to millions of people. And the third thing I would say, quite simply, is it happened to me. <laughs> Share your own story. Because they're more likely to be interested in that rather than any neurological facts and statistics you can produce. They want to know why you have this crazy belief. What happened to you to change your mind about everything? And was it just you were brought up that way? You were brainwashed into it? Or was there a point when, you know, uh, something happened that just could not be denied any longer? Uh, tell them about it, and that would be the third good reason. There's one final thing that we've done every time too, and that's to work on your return. <laughs> Sending a shot back across the table can sometimes be more important than the original serve. So if they've served you this question, how do you answer it? Because what you want to do is turn the turtles on them. So that uh, you're not just discussing question after question. This is why I don't believe in Christianity. And this, and this, and this. But you're saying, listen, let's look at what you believe. Does it make as much sense? So how do you turn it around? Well, the three um, possibles I've thought of here, and they're only my ideas for a return when somebody asks that kind of question. Are, well, this is the one that I, I, I've often used in the past. Okay, so you don't believe in conversion. You don't believe that God changes people. Well... How do you think bad people can be made good? Or is it impossible? Is it possible for people to change unless God steps in and changes them? I mean, when you think about it, we're living in a world in which people are categorized as evil very, very easily. People who are guilty of sex crimes, people who kiss women footballers on the lips, all sorts of things. And suddenly they're condemned and they can't do anything right ever again. And we're good at condemning people, pigeonholing them, and we're never getting them back. Is there any hope 
for people who've done something wrong. Can people really change? We're also sadly living in a society where uh, media people are very keen to expose religious people as untrustworthy. They're all perverts, they're all making money, they're all trying to do this, they're all trying to... And you can't be that simply judgmental of people. But what do you do with people who have done something wrong? Can they change? Can they be better? Or are they just stacked that away for the rest of their lives? How do you think bad people can be made good? That often starts some interesting conversations. Another one I've used is this one. Why is Christianity spread so irresistibly if people don't really have an encounter with Jesus? I mean, there are so many people who've become Christians down through the last 2,000 years. If, if there's nothing real in it, if it's all flim flam and make-believe and fairy tales, how come it happens to so many people? I remember going to the place in Galilee where the uh, miracle of the uh, loaves and fishes is supposed to have happened, the feeding of the 5,000, a place called Tagba. And I was there on a school trip, and all of the kids were going around the, taking pictures of the church and the mosaic where it's all supposed to have happened and things like that. And I went out to the park and took a picture of the buses. And the kids thought, he's definitely lost it this time. What's going on? <laughs> and the reason I was doing that was I couldn't believe how many coaches there were coming in and going out all the time. And there were just hundreds and hundreds of them. And I was thinking to myself, here is the site of where a miracle is thought, thought it might have taken place. 2,000 years ago, by somebody who lived for 33 years and died and hasn't been seen since. Well, he has, but that's another story. Um, so why do so many buses, why so many interests, thousands of tourists every day come to this spot where it might just have happened? It's incredible. Has anybody ever had an impact on the world like that? And the answer is no. And the only reason that people still come and photograph that place and, 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 and tour around Israel and so on, so because... Jesus Christ is still very much alive in people's thinking all over the world. And it's because millions of people claim to have an encounter with Jesus, which is real. And the third thing I would say is this. Okay, you don't believe in my experience. What kind of experience would convince you that God is real? What could God do that would convince you? And normally the answer you get is, well, yeah, maybe if he appeared in front of me, I'd believe in that. No, you wouldn't believe that. Suppose God appeared in front of you right now and said, Oh, I'm your father, my son, and then disappeared again into thin air. What would that convince you of? You might think for half an hour, I've just met God. And you think, I've just met God? What's going on here? This is ridiculous. I've had a brain seizure. Something's going wrong. I've gone mad. Because nothing like that had ever happened in your experience before. And sometimes people say, Well, I believe in God if you could prove it scientifically. But you know what? You can prove anything with statistics. And if I gave you proof that ended up, therefore, X equals Y, therefore God exists, I think you just spend the rest of your life trying to find the hole in the problem. I have a friend who's a mathematician, and he can prove to you in five lines of algebra that two and two equals five. No problem. Of course, there's a mistake in there, but most people would never see it. So I think you'd be looking for the mistake if you had a proof like that. And uh, God does not do random miracles, does not appear in front of people. God does not give us an iron cast proof. Instead, he offers us an experience, which once you try it for yourself, you find is real and lasts and makes sense. I think that's probably enough for tonight, and uh, I'll hand back to Steve.